Welcome back to Horror Science, a podcast exploring the facts behind your favorite scary movies. I'm your host, Olivia Eiler. This week I'll be covering John Carpenter's Halloween. Before I jump into the episode, though, I've got a quick announcement. So when I started Horror Science Up, I was on winter break from college and I released a new episode every weekend. This week, I've got to head back to school, and with my course load and the price of tuition, school has to be my top priority. So I'm going to change my release schedule to every other weekend. There may be a few weeks in the next months that I won't be too busy and I'll be able to release a bonus episode then, and when that happens, I'll announce it on the Twitter page, which is at HorrorSciencePO. But for now, you can plan on a new episode every other week. So back to episode 5. John Carpenter's 1978 Halloween has an incredible reputation and one that's been well-earned. Some claim the film kicked off the slasher subgenre. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it is certainly a huge influence in horror. The film begins with six-year-old Michael Myers murdering his older sister on Halloween night. Then the movie jumps ahead 15 years to Myers escaping from a mental institution and traveling back to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois. The majority of Halloween follows babysitter and breakout star Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Although Laurie is number one on Michael's hit list, Michael only manages to kill a mechanic, a cat, and three of Laurie's close friends. He also probably scars the two kids Laurie's babysitting. Despite seven sequels, the Halloween series never lets us know what happened to Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace after the boogeyman nearly killed their babysitter. For this episode, I'm going to start by looking at some crime statistics. Like the name suggests, the plot of Halloween relies on the calendar. But is crime really more likely on that day than any other? To go along with that, I found a related case study referred to as the Liskey family murder called the McDonald Triad, which is sort of a list of warning signs that your kid might be a serial killer. Next, we'll look at the effect that wearing a mask might have had upon Michael. The buzzwords for that segment are embodied cognition and de-individuation. Finally, I wanted to see how much of a possibility it really was for Michael to escape from Smith's Grove Sanitarium. This comes with another case study, which follows a serial killer who escaped from a hospital for the criminally insane in England. Halloween is, without a doubt, in the top two for most commercially successful films centered around a specific day of the year. Friday the 13th was great, but you don't hear much about the influence of Silent Night, Deadly Night, New Year's Evil, Thanksgiving, My Bloody Valentine, or even Leprechaun. Maybe part of the appeal of Halloween and Friday the 13th is that they center on traditionally scary days. But is Halloween really more dangerous than any other day of the year? The verdict is mixed on this one. Depending on your criteria for danger, you may get a different answer. I'm going to start with a source that supports the idea of Halloween as a dangerous time. These statistics come from a 2011 article written by James Allen Fox, a professor at Northeastern University, titled The Halloween Crime Spike. And as always, you can find links to all the sources I reference throughout the episode on the landing page at horrorscience.x10host.com. Fox looked at serious violent crime rates, including homicide, forcible rape, robbery, and aggravated assault in Boston between 2006 and 2009. He has some really great graphs to show his findings, and you can find those on the landing page. But he found that crime spiked upwards on January 1st, July 4th, and October 31st. He then zoomed in even more with his research, 
finding that violent crime committed between 6 p.m. and midnight was nearly 50% higher on Halloween than any other day of the year, including New Year's and Independence Day. Once again, Fox narrowed his focus and looked at the hour-by-hour violent crime incidents on Halloween, and he found that it peaked between 7 and 8 p.m. On all other days in Boston, these types of crimes peak around midnight. So, at least if you're living in Boston, Halloween has an earned reputation of danger. But the bad thing about this study is that it focuses on just one large city. I tried to find similar studies, but I didn't get anywhere with that. I do think it would be interesting, though, to compare Boston's Halloween crime with mid-sized and even rural cities to see if it's a localized trend or if it's the same across the population board. The next source I found looks at a bunch of different aspects of safety, so the statistics were a lot broader in scope. It's a 2015 article written by Heidi Redlitz called The Myths and Legends About Halloween Crime, Fact or Fiction. One of the first things Redlitz looks into is transportation safety. She says that it's a common myth that Halloween is the day with the most DUI arrests. Although holidays do have higher rates of drunk driving, Halloween isn't at the top of the list. Obviously, New Year's and the 4th of July have Halloween beat for DUI arrests, but even Thanksgiving, Christmas, St. Patrick's Day, and Valentine's Day have more DUIs than Halloween. So, drunk driving in general isn't as big of a danger as some people may think, but car accidents are another story. Kids are four times more likely to be hit by a car on Halloween than any other day of the year. So, obviously, supervision, walking on sidewalks, and reflective costumes are a must to keep your kiddos safe. Kind of along the same lines, the next two myths deal with child safety. Contrary to some beliefs, there's no notable jump in kidnappings on Halloween. Redlitz did give the statistic that kidnappings happen every 40 seconds in the United States, so unfortunately there's not really a safe time for that. Another really popular Halloween myth involves candy. I remember as a kid, my mom always going through my bag and checking every piece before I could eat anything. The last time I went trick-or-treating was in sixth grade, and I went with a group of friends. And I think the thing that my mom was most concerned with was warning me about checking the wrappers before I ate anything. There's all these horror stories about razor blades and anthrax, but it turns out there's not a lot of sustenance for this. A sociologist named Joel Best analyzed decades of newspaper articles about harmful Halloween candy, and he found 90 cases of possible tampering. But with deeper research... He found that most of these 90 were either hoaxes or involved a kid or a group of kids who got sick from a reason that was unrelated to the candy. Best was only able to find one solid example of candy tampering in the United States. And it wasn't some sadistic stranger. It was a dad who, in 1974, thought he'd poison his son to collect the life insurance. I'm not saying stop checking your candy because you're better safe than sorry, but this is definitely an aspect of Halloween danger that's exaggerated and sensational. So I want to go ahead and jump into the case study that relates to Halloween crime. While I was trying to find crime rates for that day, I came across so many articles that were like, list of top 10 craziest Halloween crimes. Uh, So as I looked through all these lists, I found one crime that I thought somewhat connected to the film. This is actually a really recent crime, so some listeners might be familiar with it. The information comes from a November 2010 article written by Sarah Weber titled Tragic Timeline Details Surface on Halloween Family Killings. So, like in the film, I'm going to start this story at early childhood, but there is a lot more context provided for this crime than the film gives for Myers. 
When William B.J. Liskey's parents divorced during his childhood, he began to skip school and misbehave to the point that neighbors started noticing. Some suspected him of torturing and killing pets. The family dog was found shot twice. In 2001, his father, William Bill Liskey, remarried to Susan Griffin. The new relationship must have triggered something in B.J. Liskey. In 2012, when B.J. was only 16, his father called the police because B.J. had threatened to harm himself. When the police arrived, B.J. acted out violently, assaulting the officers and earning himself a stint in juvenile court. Then he progressed to more violent actions, many of which were directed towards his stepmother, Susan. In October of 2004, he physically assaulted her, hitting her in the chest. In December of that same year, he was charged with assault and robbery after hitting Susan with a coffee cup and taking her car keys. The charges were eventually dropped, but that wasn't the end of BJ's outbursts. At the age of 18, he attacked Susan while she was in the shower. After this incident, Bill kicked his son out of the house and sent him to live in a group home in Sandusky, Ohio. In 2007, BJ was hospitalized and diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder bipolar type. Family friend Mark Gradle, who was interviewed by investigators, said that BJ's father Bill was always willing to give BJ another chance. Bill made frequent visits to the group home to visit BJ. Whenever Gradle voiced concerns about the safety of Bill and the rest of his family, Bill brushed the comments off. In late October of 2010, Bill took time off of work to take the 24-year-old BJ on a hunting trip at the family's cabin in Carroll County, Ohio. Now I've got to introduce two more characters. Susan had two sons before her marriage to Bill Liskey, 23-year-old Derek Griffin and 16-year-old Devin Griffin. The weekend that Bill and BJ had their hunting trip, Halloween weekend in 2010, Devin was staying at his father's house. He came back to his mother Susan's home around 9.30 a.m. on October 31st to change for church. He saw BJ on his way out and stated that he appeared more cheerful than usual. At 1.30 p.m., Devin Griffin returned from church. B.J. Liskey was gone, and Griffin started to wonder where his mother, stepfather, and brother were. Devin checked the master bedroom and found his mother and stepdad in bed, and at first he thought they were still sleeping. Bill was shot five times in the head at close range. The sheets were pulled over his head. Susan was shot three times at close range. Although she was found in the bed, her awkward position led investigators to believe that her body had been moved. Upstairs, Derek Griffin was found curled in his bed. He had been hit in the head with a claw hammer and died of blunt force trauma. Obviously, the police were contacted and they began a search for B.J. Liskey. And despite this being a really serious event, there was one part of this article that made me laugh. For it being such a serious article, I was just really shocked that they included this part. So here's the quote from the article. When detectives from the Ottawa County Sheriff's Office went to the Carroll County cabin to look for evidence, they found an uneaten Subway sandwich on the counter. B.J. Liskey apparently didn't have time to eat before deputies burst in October 31st. The detectives obtained security video from a Subway restaurant near the camp showing Liskey purchasing the sandwich. So I don't know who made the decision to include that piece of information in the article, but I'm really glad they did because it helped lighten it up a little bit. So in September of 2011, B.J. Liskey was found guilty of three counts of aggravated murder and received three life sentences without the possibility of parole. 
According to an article written by Craig Shoup for the Port Clinton News Herald, on March 31, 2015, B.J. Leskey died of a self-inflicted wound in his cell at Ross Correctional Institution. The really awful thing about this is how preventable it all was. B.J. Leskey started showing signs of mental illness a decade before the murders. If it was obvious enough for his neighbors to notice, it should have been easy for the adults close to B.J. to detect. Unfortunately, there's still such a big stigma surrounding mental health and mental illnesses. B.J. Lusky went without a diagnosis and without treatment until 2007. I just wonder what the outcome would have been for Lusky and his family had he received help earlier. This transitions pretty well into the next segment, which is about the McDonald Triad. This segment will be a little bit different than normal because I'm getting this information from a printed source. So instead of putting a link to an article or a journal on the landing page for this segment, I guess I can just post a link to the books on Amazon. So the first book is Serial Murderers and Their Victims, written by E.W. Hickey and published in 2016. The second is a 2012 publication titled The Will to Kill, Making Sense of Senseless Murder, written by J.A. Fox, J. Levin, and K. Kine. You might be wondering why I have these books on hand, and I actually have a pretty good reason. So last summer, I took a couple of online classes at a community college. I had to take a world history class for my degree, so I decided it would be better to get that out of the way online rather than in person. And since 16th century history seemed like it would be kind of a heavy class, I picked out an elective that I thought would be a bit more interesting, and that was a criminology class called Introduction to Serial Killers. So maybe having that one class gives this podcast a little bit more credibility. One of the focuses of the course was the development of an individual into a serial killer. Are they born that way? Do they just snap one day? Or is it more gradual? As far as the cause is concerned, the most recent and accepted explanation is called the integrated theory. This theory states that biological predispositions create conditional free will. So in simpler terms, this means that both nature and nurture contribute to the development of a serial killer. Some people may be born with genes that make them more likely to be violent, and some life circumstances can create incredible stress. But the conditioned free will aspect of this theory still places the final choice on the affected individual. One interesting thing the class covered was the McDonald Triad, which I referred to earlier as a checklist of warning signs for future serial killing. The McDonald Triad was developed to identify warning signs of future violence in children. The triad includes three responses to childhood stress, which are torturing animals, bedwetting, and fire setting. This has kind of a stretched connection to the original Halloween film. While Loomis and the sheriff search the old Myers house for signs of Michael's return, they find a cat that's been killed. But there's a more solid connection between the McDonald triad and Rob Zombie's 2007 remake. I don't want to shift my focus entirely to the remake, but I think that it's related well enough to this segment to mention it. Zombies Halloween has been described as a prequel and a remake. Instead of opening with Michael coming in from trick-or-treating and killing his sister, the film provides an explanation for Michael's mental state. He lives in poverty with a mother whose financial situation pushed her into sex work. Her boyfriend is abusive to her and her three children. Michael's bullied by this guy at home and a couple meanies at school. Rob Zombie definitely provided the environmental stressors for Michael. The first half of the film also shows Michael Myers displaying part of the McDonald Triad. 
he kills his pet rat, and in his school bag, he has a paper bag with a dead cat inside of it and several pictures of mutilated and killed animals. Back to the science, uh, the McDonald triad isn't really accepted as a sure sign of a killer. Although these behaviors appear more often in future serial killers, they do not guarantee future aggression. Also, it's important to note that not all three behaviors have to occur simultaneously to predict future aggression. So instead of serving as a test for the likelihood of a child growing up to be a serial killer, the McDonald triad should be utilized as an indication that a child may need medical attention to improve their mental health and self-esteem. If your kid is killing animals or setting fires, it's not going to be a bad idea to ask a doctor for some help. The next thing I want to talk about is Michael's mask. In John Carpenter's opening, Michael puts on the clown mask before he kills his sister. When Laurie unmasks Michael at the film's climax, he seems shocked, confused, and maybe even a little ashamed or guilty. He puts it back on within seconds, right before Loomis shoots him six times. It seems like Michael's killer persona is somehow tied to his mask. Like Jason, Jigsaw, and Leatherface, when somebody says Michael Myers, the image that probably pops into your head is a masked killer. Masks are so influential in horror, and I wanted to do some research into why that might be. But before I get to masks, I'm going to explain something called embodied cognition. This information comes from a New York Times article titled Mind Games. Sometimes a white coat isn't just a white coat, written by Sandra Blakesley in 2012. Embodied cognition refers to the idea that physical aspects, such as clothing, have an impact on how an individual thinks. I think everybody's probably experienced this before. You might dress up for a job interview or for a date to increase your confidence. Or if you wear glasses for reading and schoolwork, you might feel more intelligent just by putting those glasses on. It turns out that these feelings might be worth a little more. A three-part study led by Adam D. Galinsky, a professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, published in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology, provided further support of embodied cognition and provided practical applications. The researchers were aware of the obvious impact that clothing can have upon others' perceptions of an individual. For example, somebody who shows up to a job interview in khakis and a button-down is more likely to get that position than someone who shows up in a swimsuit. But the researchers wanted to see if the clothing an individual wears can affect how they interact with the world around them. The first experiment involved 58 undergrad students who were randomly assigned to wear a white lab coat or regular everyday clothing. Each student was given a test to measure selective attention. The article provides the example of having to recognize the word red written in green. Students wearing street clothes made twice as many errors as those in lab coats. These results suggest that clothing can have a positive impact on cognitive abilities. For the second experiment, Galinsky upped his subject count to 74. This time, there were three randomly assigned categories. Wearing a doctor's coat, wearing a painter's coat, and looking at a doctor's coat. The subjects were asked to notice minor differences between two side-by-side -side pictures. The students in the doctor's coats were able to identify the largest number of differences. This portion of the study revealed two things. First, physically wearing the coat had a greater impact than simply seeing the coat. Second, despite looking the same, the perception of wearing a doctor's coat had a greater impact on cognition than the perception of wearing a painter's coat. 
The third portion of this experiment was very similar to the second, except subjects were asked to reflect on their thoughts about the coats they were wearing or looking at before taking the test. The results of this portion of the experiment confirmed the findings of the second. Perception is crucial in embodied cognition. It's important to note that this wasn't a very large study, and the field of embodied cognition is still pretty new. A lot more research is needed before it can be accepted as a scientific fact instead of possible coincidence, but this study was a good starting point. Galinsky proposed future experiments to test if the effects wear off over time or if the abilities and perceptions aided by the clothing would eventually become an individual's primary way of thinking. He also hopes to explain how this process works in the brain instead of simply describing its effects. So, in this view of embodied cognition, it seems very positive. It has the potential to improve attention and focus. But there's also a dark side to it, and that's the part that's related to the masks that we see so often in horror movies. According to a 2014 article written by Carrie Rom titled, How Halloween Makes Kids More Monstrous, the first major study related to this happened in 1976. Psychologists staked out 27 houses in Seattle, which were visited by a total of more than 1,000 trick-or-treaters. Each house had two bowls on the front porch, one that was filled with candy and one that was filled with nickels and pennies. Each time a kid or group of kids came up to the door, a female researcher would greet them. Sometimes she would ask their name, and sometimes she would allow them to remain anonymous. Then the woman would tell the kids that she had to get back to some work inside and instruct them to only take one piece of candy. Once inside, the researcher would watch the children's actions through a peephole in the door. The study revealed two major trends. First, the trick-or-treaters who didn't give their name were three times more likely to take money and extra candy than those who weren't anonymous. Second, the kids who came in groups were twice as likely to take money or extra candy than those who came by themselves. A similar study was carried out on Halloween in 1979. This information comes from a write-up published by Franklin G. Miller and Kathleen L. Rold of Purdue University in Psychological Reports. This study was a lot smaller, it only involved 58 kids, but it really relates to the impact a mask can have upon somebody's behavior. This study was really similar to the first one I described, and that was by design. So there was a bowl of candy on the porch of one house, and every time a trick-or-treater came up who wasn't with an adult, a female researcher would open the door and tell the kid to take two pieces of candy before going back inside. So instead of focusing on asking the kid's name, this study looked at the difference in the behavior of those who were wearing masks and those who weren't. Out of the 58 kids, 39 were wearing masks. Out of those 39, 24, or 62%, took more than two pieces of candy. 19 of the 58 kids didn't wear masks, and only 7 of those, just 37%, took more than 2 pieces. The study didn't find a significant difference in behavior based on gender, and all 58 kids looked like they were between 9 and 13 years old. This all ties together with something called de-individuation. When a kid or an adult wears a mask or is in a large group, they're more likely to act in a way that is generally unacceptable. That's because masks and membership in a large group lessen the sense of individual responsibility and consequences. So even though not being able to see a responsive human face can be frightening to movie viewers, 
It's totally possible that wearing a mask is psychologically necessary for the Michael Myers and the Jason Voorhees of the movie world. The last thing I want to talk about is Michael Myers' escape from Smith's Grove Sanitarium. Watching this movie, I always get kind of distracted by how the power goes out and Michael's able to get out of his room through the entire building and past all the guards. So for this segment, I did a little bit of research into just how likely it is for someone to break out of a high security mental institution. It's actually a lot more common than I thought. The information from this segment comes from an article written by Martha Belisle in May 2016 for the Associated Press. In April of 2016, two patients escaped from Western State Hospital in Lakewood, Washington. The hospital has 800 patients, some of which have committed crimes, such as murder, rape, assault, and kidnapping. Not everyone there has been convicted of a crime, so the hospital has a few different wards with varying degrees of security. The building has multiple stories and it's surrounded by a short stone fence. Across the street, there's a park and a high school. I really wonder why a movie based off of this place hasn't been made yet. During this incident in 2016, the public kind of freaked out, understandably, because one of the patients that escaped was in Western for murder. To try to do some good PR, the hospital said that breakouts were rare, with only two others occurring in the past seven years. The Associated Press did a little bit of research into this claim and found that in the past three and a half years alone, 185 patients had escaped. This is a quote from the article about the breakouts. Patients have bolted out unsecured doors, jumped over fences, crawled out windows, run away from staff during off-campus appointments, and wandered off after being allowed outside of the building. Some returned on their own within hours, but many disappeared for weeks or longer. Police captured them down the street, in nearby cities, in faraway counties, and in other states. Others were never found. At least eight patients committed assaults or other offenses while they were out, authorities said. So to make this situation even worse, the Associated Press also found out the hospital's employees had been falsifying documents to try to cover this up, which is a big no-no. Despite some of the escapees being booked in for violent crimes, staff members who were documenting the escapes almost always labeled the patients as not dangerous. Forensic psychologist Richard Adler disagrees, saying that patients leaving the hospital without their medication or a long-term treatment plan are, in fact, dangerous. The hospital also tried to cover their tracks by giving false information to the police, saying that escaped patients' commitment periods were up. And to top this off, the public was only alerted of five out of the 185 escapes. When all of this information came out, it was a bad time to be working PR for the hospital. The corrections department had to come into the hospital and basically make a list of all of the infrastructure and staffing changes that needed to be made. And Washington's governor fired the hospital CEO. And it's not just the United States that has terrible mental health care and prison systems. England has their fair share of failures too. And this one comes from a 2008 article by Christopher Hudson titled Broadmoor Hospital Harbors England's Most Famous Serial Killers and Now the Files Are Made Public. That headline is a little too sensational for my taste, but I thought the story was interesting enough to include here. This one's a little bit more serious. With Western State Hospital, it was given out that eight of the patients committed a crime upon breaking out, but the article didn't list what specific crimes. 
Although the Western case gives an idea of how easy it can be to break out of a mental institution, this story from Broadmoor relates a little more closely to the seriousness of Michael Myers' escape in Halloween. Broadmoor, which used to be called the Broadmoor Hospital for the Criminally Insane, was designed by a military engineer and was the first custom-built asylum for the criminally insane when it was built in 1863. It was intended to be a place where individuals who had committed a crime as a result of mental illness could receive treatment and maintain the safety of themselves and other criminals around them while they served out their sentences. Broadmoor sits on 53 acres, and it was originally designed to hold 400 men and 100 women. Today, it holds around 260 men. This article by Christopher Hudson shares the stories of a lot of Broadmoor's patients, but the one I thought made the most sense in connection to the movie Halloween is the story of John Straffen. In 1951, at the age of 21, Straffen led a five-year-old girl named Brenda Goddard into some woods in the city of Bath with the promise of picking flowers with her. Instead, he strangled her to death. A couple of days later, Straffen led nine-year-old Cicely Batstone into an isolated field under the guise of taking her to a movie theater. Once again, the little girl was strangled to death. I know society was a lot more relaxed back then, but this is peak stranger danger. Luckily, though, a lot of people had seen Straffen with Batstone, so the police were able to arrest him the next morning. Initially, he was sentenced to death, but as a result of claims of insanity, he was given life in prison instead. He was sent to Broadmoor, and he was not an ideal patient. In 1952, just a year after his crimes, he was on cleaning duty outside. He climbed a shed and jumped from the top to the other side of the fence. I guess before the staff noticed he was gone, he had time to walk and make his way to Arborfield, where he strangled and killed five-year-old Linda Bowyer. Locals noticed him acting really strangely after the murder, and police were able to recapture him the same day. He was sent back to Broadmoor, which received some much-needed updates. They installed an alarm system with 13 sirens that sounded in five surrounding cities. If a patient escapes, the alarm sounds for 20 minutes, schools go on lockdown, and roadblocks are set up so every passing car in the town can be checked. And luckily, Broadmoor has only had one other major escape scare since John Straffen. John Straffen spent the rest of his life in Broadmoor, and his first escape was his last. He died in 2006 at the age of 77, making him the longest-serving prisoner in the United Kingdom. So this case study just reaffirmed how dangerous it can be to have an escaped prisoner running around. It wasn't that unrealistic for Halloween to have Michael Myers break out of Smith's Grove and go on a murder spree. There is one thing, though, that is definitely not credible about Myers' escape. He had been in Smith's Grove since he was six years old. He did not know how to drive that getaway car. So that's it for this episode. We went over the increase in crime rates that occur over the holidays and talked about the McDonald triad. Then there was embodied cognition and the de-individuation that Halloween masks and group activities can impose on an individual. And lastly, breakouts aren't as rare as they may seem. As always, if you're listening on iTunes, feel free to subscribe and leave a rating or a review. If you missed the website earlier, which will have links to all the sources I referenced throughout this episode, that can be found at horrorscience.x10host.com. Also, the podcast now has a SoundCloud account up and running with audio from all of the episodes. That profile name is Horror Science. 
And finally, if you've got any comments on this episode or suggestions for future films, you can send an email to horrorsciencepodcast at gmail.com or send a tweet out to at horrorsciencepo. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for a new episode in two weeks.